And what that helped me to understand is that it's not just that we don't have control. It's not just that we shouldn't try to have control. It's that it costs us whenever we try to have it. It costs us. And this isn't an if, it's a when. And we know this because this was written into the blueprint of creation when sin entered the world. And we are just reenacting that moment again and again. We're reenacting that grasp for control, but then we're also reenacting its consequences as well. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I am your host, Molly Stillman, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, the companies, and the small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I get to sit down with an incredible entrepreneur, community, activist, business leader, pastor, speaker, author, or just an incredible person who is trying to make a positive impact, not only through their personal life, but also with their career. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact wherever you are. I am so excited about my guest this week because my guest this week is one of my best friends in the whole wide world, and that is Sharon Hottie Miller. Sharon is a teaching pastor at Bright City Church here in Durham, North Carolina, which she co-founded with her husband, Ike. She is the author of Free of Me and Nice, and also the latest book, The Cost of Control, Why We Crave It, The Anxiety It Gives Us, and The Real Power God Promises. She has been blogging at sheworships.com for over a decade. She's been a regular contributor to Propel, Hermeneutics, She Reads Truth, she's written for Relevant, Christianity Today, Encourage, and so many others. She has three amazing kids, and she lives just right down the road from me and truly is one of my dearest friends in the world. I am so excited to have Sharon on the show because she is brilliant, truly, truly brilliant. And I'm not just saying that because I love her because she's my friend. She is just an incredible encouragement in my life. She is somebody who is the epitome of iron sharpening iron. And if you have read any of her books, Free of Me or Nice, you know that Sharon is absolutely so wise and has such a valuable and important voice to offer our culture. This is her second time on the show, which is very exciting. It's a, you know, it's a rare thing when I have somebody on the show more than once, but I am so excited about her latest book, The Cost of Control, because this is something that so many of us struggle with, where we really, really struggle with control. We wish we had more control, but the reality is, is our control or our illusion of it is costing us something. And so Sharon and I, I dive really deep into that conversation. So I cannot wait for you to hear it. But before I get to my conversation with Sharon, I want to thank our partner of the show. And that is Mama Suds. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know how much I love Mama Suds. This is an incredible mom owned business. I've had the head mama, Michelle Smith on the show before. So you can even go back and listen to my interview with her. But we have used their products in our home for years from their all purpose household cleaner to their stain stick to the oxy powder to, you know, Now they have shower steamers, uh, Castile soap, so many incredible products that are not only safe and effective and smell great, but actually work. So I highly recommend them. Go check out mamasuds.com and you can use the coupon code MOLLY and that will give you 15% off. Now, without further ado, on to my conversation with my dear friend, Sharon Miller. Well, number one, this is very exciting because I have one of my best friends in the studio with me. Hi, friend. Welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. And I, we have to start this off because you are now a part of a very exclusive club 
it's a very exclusive club. And uh, I, the last person who I inducted into this very exclusive club, and that is Mary Morantz, uh, we had discussed making like velvet jackets, like the like on Saturday Night Live where they hand them like the five timers club. Uh-huh. Uh, the exclusive club is you. This is your second time on my podcast. Oh boy! And it's a very exclusive club. There's only uh, three other people prior to you, yeah, who are a part of this club, and it, it that is Mary Morantz, uh-huh. Liz Bohannon, and Daniel Grothy. So Aww, they're all like the best people. I know. So it's a very exclusive club. I don't have a velvet jacket for you, and I apologize that I did not. <laughs> get that together in time um i can uh give you a dozen eggs uh when you leave that can be your <laughs> but i probably would have given you those anyway so <laughs> like, when people come to visit i'm just like would you like eggs would you like some vegetables can i what can i send you home with? sounds good i'll take eggs i know yeah i'll take uh, fresh eggs yes and that will be your your two timers club <laughs> gift it's, it's better it, than a swag bag it really is eggs. it really is um okay well Sharon Hottie Miller is on the show and I am just so grateful. And, you know, when you came on the first time, you gave us the Sharon 101. And so when you are a two timer, you give us the Sharon 201. So what's like happened? So the last time you were on the show, your book Nice was coming out, Mm -hmm. which is a little over three years ago, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. And honestly, right by the time we are recording this, is about the three-year anniversary of when we did your launch party for Nice at the Flourish Market. That's right. I was actually thinking about that yesterday. I know. I know. So uh, what has been, what's been going on in your world in the last three three years? Well, I don't know if you heard there was a pandemic. There was? <laughs> what? That's crazy. <laughs> so that happened less than six months after my last book released, Yeah, actually. And so at the time, our church was a year and a half old. So Ike and I have been pastoring through a pandemic. So just super fun. That has been taking up a lot of my attention. (laughs) That's been the main thing. (laughs) But honestly, that is kind of the that's just pastoring our church has been and then trying to be present to our kids has been a lot of our focus in the last several years. And then writing this book. And then writing this book. And one of the things that I know you even discuss it briefly in the book, I think maybe in the acknowledgments, is that the book manuscript was due like a year prior to when you turned it in. Yeah. Well, and it's it's funny. I even changed the topic. Initially, I was going to write on resilience. and I remember that. Yeah. And I'm really glad I didn't. At the time, I realized I need to be in ministry longer before I'm writing on this book. But and I thought other people need to hear from people who've been in ministry longer than me on this topic. And I really think that was the Holy Spirit because about, I don't know, six, nine months ago, Glenn Packiam came out with a book called The Resilient Pastor. Oh, yeah. And then right now, I think Christine Kane has a book coming out called Resilient Hope. Mm. And so I feel like the Holy Spirit was basically saying, I've got it. <laughs> I'm I'm good. I've got somebody in mind. Yeah. And so I tabled that and then we were homeschooling our kids. You know, I should not be homeschooling. Mm-hmm. There like I believe that teaching children is an actual spiritual gift. Yes. That I don't possess. <laughs> 
And so it took like everything in me, you know, to do that well and to be present. And so just writing a book during that was out of the question. And so I'm really grateful to that my publisher was wonderful and understanding and let me wait so that I could write this book well and do it justice. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say that you talked about the book on resilience because I remember that. That was, Mm -hmm. we had a whole, I think it was over tacos, which is Mm -hmm. very standard for us Mm -hmm. um, and our general love of Mexican food slash Tex-Mex. And I remember you talking about that. And then I remember a few weeks later you being like, I think actually God's telling me to write something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here we are. And when this airs, it will be the day after your book launches. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I've been warming up my vocal cords, Sharon, um, because as you know, when a book launches, I have to sing happy birthday to it. <laughs> <laughs> so I did this at your launch party for nice and it would not be, uh, you know, okay. So <clears throat> Oh, I've been I have to record this. Yes. While you're doing this. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so I've, I've I have this all planned out. Um, so when you birth a baby book, a book baby, uh, it is customary to sing happy birthday to said book baby. OK, oh, man. are oh, you ready? I'm almost ready. <laughs> all right, <clears throat> I'm ready. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear cost of control. (laughs) Happy birthday to you. No, um, I'm sorry that. Well, actually, I'm not sorry. You're bananas. <laughs> I am bananas. You're bananas. Uh, but this is what you get when you are friends with me. So I'll take it. As I will sing happy birthday to your books. I'll take it. So it. this airs the day after your book comes out, and uh, it is called "The Cost of Control: Why We Crave It, the Anxiety It Gives Us, and the Real Power God Promises." And to watch you, just as your friend, go through the process of writing this book over the last couple of years during the time um, that we wrote it in, I would love for you to share what was it that kind of had the holy the, the Holy Spirit led you away from writing on resilience mm-hmm. and to writing on control. And I know that obviously the pandemic played a big part, but there was more to it than that. Yeah. So I think the seed of it actually came from watching people in my church and and on social media respond to the pandemic, you know, with the the pandemic and, and really any challenge, any trial in our lives that we feel anxious about, we feel fearful about, we tend to blame the thing and say, this is making me feel this way. This is making me act this way. And that is true to an extent, but trials also have a way of revealing what was already there, what was already inside of us. And so I'm watching the people in my church, I'm watching people online have these major control responses. You can see they are unable to tolerate the uncertainty of this new world all of a sudden. They're they're grasping for certainty. They're grasping for predictability. And so people are spending just hours online. I was spending hours online yeah. like scrolling, researching, trying to understand, you know, what are the numbers? What is what do we know about this new virus? Like how it affects us, you know, constantly taking your temperature, you know, following people on social media who are just dispensing advice, you know, even though, you know, social media influencers don't know how to shepherd people through a pandemic, but we are desperate for someone to tell us, you know, what to do to make us feel more in control of the situation. And so I see this, this response in the people around me 
And I realized, okay, this is a discipleship issue. Like this is revealing a lack of spiritual formation that, you know, it's not as if pandemics are new. It's not as if living in an unpredictable world is new. We are heirs to scripture that was handed to us by people who lived through persecution, through famine, through, you know, all sorts of challenges. And they're handing us God's word and saying, be content in all circumstances, you know, peace that transcends all understanding. So they're saying like, this is possible for you coming from people who are legit, you know? Yes. And we are clearly not equipped with that. Like we have not been formed by this tradition. And so I'm recognizing that this is a major discipleship problem that is being revealed and that I wanted to dig deeper into it. But I also realized that I don't enjoy tackling topics and and I feel a little bit like a hypocrite whenever I'm writing to, quote, people out there, like, let me fix you. You know, mm-hmm. and I I write my best. I preach my best. I teach my best when I am plumbing the depths of my own soul. Right. And so that's when I sort of turned more inward just to examine myself. And oh boy, like I, yeah. I realized I was having other control responses as well. Like a big one was just at home with my kids. You know, as I just mentioned, I should not be homeschooling. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not Mr. Rogers, unfortunately. And so our and you know, my kids like they're very loud. They are big personalities. No, no shy kids in my family. No introverts. For some reason, they're all just wild out. And so our house was loud all the time. And I felt trapped by that. And so I started responding by trying to be louder. You know, Mm. I'm gonna if you're gonna be loud, I'm gonna be louder. And this is how I'm gonna dominate you and control you essentially. So I'm having that control response. I'm also having a control response as we lead because we are having to make decisions about, you know, the pandemic. There was also that first summer, a lot of conversations around race. There was a polarizing election. There were so many things that were dividing our church and not just our church, the church in the United States. And so every decision we were making was basically lose-lose. We were just disappointing people. And so I started thinking, well, if I explain it the right way, like if I show them the scripture, you know, that I searched or the theology that we are drawing on or the wise counsel that we sought or the pastors that we listened to or the experts in our church. And if I bring all of this to them and explain it just the right way, then they will agree with us and understand. And again, this is a control response. Yeah, This is thinking if I have just the right argument, I can control what people think about the decisions we're making and what they think about me. And so just recognizing that in myself as well. And one thing that is really huge for me is as I work through my own faith and like spiritual growth is the question like what actually is helpful and what is not helpful with control or at least has not been helpful for me is being told you feel like you're out of control, like you want to control the situation? Well, don't. (laughs) Yes. Oh, what a simple solution. Yeah. Like just let go, surrender, you know. Let go and let God. Yeah. Like control is idolatry. You know, you're trusting yourself over God. Like don't do that, you know, slap on the wrist. And that was not helpful for me. And so as I was just thinking through this and turning it over in my mind, like, how can I reframe this in a way that is more motivating? That's when I I stumbled onto 
this concept in Genesis 3 where we see that Adam and Eve they're reaching for control in that moment where they bite that fruit. They're reaching for knowledge. They're reaching for this godlike stature and, and power. And immediately there are consequences to this. Immediately there is shame. Immediately there is anxiety. Immediately there is relational division. And what that helped me to understand is that it's not just that we don't have control. It's not just that we shouldn't try to have control. It's that it costs us right. whenever we try to have it. It costs us. And this isn't an if, it's a when. Right. And we know this because this was written into the blueprint of creation when sin entered the world. And yes. we are just reenacting that moment again and again. We're reenacting that grasp for control, but then we're also reenacting its consequences as well. And that was so helpful to me because it reframed in those situations where I'm trying to control things. Like if I'm trying, you know, I can I lead Bright City together. And so we're often negotiating decisions and I can make him do what I want him to do. Like right. I know how to pressure him. I know how to manipulate him. I know, you know, what to do to push his buttons. And so I can control my husband. But realizing even if I think what I'm making him do is like the quote unquote best decision for our church, that will cost me. Right. It will cost our marriage. It will cost our intimacy. And I might not even see that cost today. I might not see it tomorrow. I might not see it for five years, but it will cost us. That was a different question. And that was really motivating for me. Same with my kids. I can control my kids. But it will cost my relationship with them. And that yeah. is a high cost. That Very is a much. high cost. And so that was really, really clarifying and, and finally was motivating enough to help me let go of control is, is realizing this is costing my mental health. This is costing my relationships. And I don't want to pay that cost. Jesus came, so I don't have to pay that cost. So that's the very long version of the answer to that story. Oh, that's so good. And man, there's so much that I want to unpack. But I want to kind of talk a little bit about that framing that you did with looking at Genesis 3. And I remember it was year before last we did the Genesis, the book of Genesis in Bible study fellowship. Mm -hmm. And um, so if you're listening, you're not familiar with what BSF is. It's uh, just a really in-depth Bible study, but it runs kind of like a school year from like September to May. And you spend that entire time studying like one particular topic. And I remember very specifically, I mean, like how many times have I read the beginning of Genesis and the creation story and all of that? And it wasn't till I went through it um, and so I guess, yeah, it was 2020, coincidentally, where it hit me the in the in the scripture where it says, like, you know, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it. And I had never noticed the word when, hmm. because so often when I hear people regurgitate that scripture, they say if hmm. if is not in the Bible mm -hmm. at all. It mm -hmm. says when. And so I think that's a really like you think, oh, well, that's it's just a word. When has a very much different meaning than if, because God in his, you know, all knowing no knew that they would do it. And mm -hmm. so he was letting them know, hey, by the way, when you do this, mm -hmm. here's what the consequence is going to be. And I just remember like 
in that moment, just being like, oh, my gosh, of, of course, of course mm-hmm. he knew. And it even says in the Bible that he knew. And so I I love that that that's sort of the framework that you use for this whole idea of what control costs you, because he God literally said, when you try to control this thing, mm-hmm. here is what the cost is going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like and not if. Uh, yeah, not, not if, if when not if you do this, uh-huh. but when you do this. And I just thought that was so um illuminating. Yeah. Just so so fascinating. But so one, good. I'm gonna steal that, Molly. Oh, please do. Please do. <laughs> steal it in the name of Jesus. But yeah, truly, because cause I feel like you hear people regurgitate that yeah. all the time and they always say if. Yeah. But the scripture says when. And so it's like, God's like, no, no, no. I already, I'm laying it out for you. Here's what you're going to do. Oh, man. And here's the cost. Scripture is so good. It's so it good. It's so deep. It's so, so good. Deep. Now, there is something that you have, you've talked about in the book. And then I have also heard you talk about in person that was completely mind blowing to me. And I just feel like if I don't touch on this particular thing mm-hmm. in this conversation, I will be doing my listeners a disservice mm-hmm. because I, Ever since you first mentioned it, I just haven't stopped thinking about it. And I even told my husband it the the night that after I you heard you talk about it. it was when you and I spoke at that um, social media for moms event, mm-hmm. and it was something that you said, and I just was immediately like, oh my gosh, it's like it's like the for when you you eat from it, mm-hmm. this is what the cost is. And um, I'm actually going to read the paragraph um, in the book because I feel like, again, I don't want to do it a disservice. But in the book, um, and it's in uh, the chapter, chapter three on knowledge and information. And you kind of touched on this a little bit in your just kind of introductory bit, but um, how just the, to you know, no pun intended, the genesis of this mm-hmm. is this constant need for control, for um, knowledge and information as a form of control. Because if we feel like we, like you were saying, you know, when the pandemic hit and you're constantly checking the news and you're constantly on the internet because you felt like, in this very out of control situation, having that knowledge or a little bit of knowledge was like a quick dopamine hit to mm-hmm. um, to make you feel like you were somewhat in control, even though you absolutely were not. And so you talk about how um, you know th- this all goes back and how knowledge and information is often a form of idolatry. And you are talking about um, Adam and Eve in the garden. And when they when they bite that fruit, like, as we just said, the cost of that was um, that there would be division and brokenness. And so you said, anyone who has grown up in church knows this story well, and yet most of us fail to recognize that we are reenacting this very scene multiple times a day. It is, after all, no small coincidence that the iPhone logo is a bitten apple. When you said that, I was like, oh my gosh, how did I never (laughs) notice that? Like, oh my gosh. Okay, I'm going to continue. Every time we open our phones to check social media or the news, it's as if we are taking another bite of that forbidden fruit, ingesting far more knowledge and information than our souls can handle. Our smartphones give us access to an unprecedented level of knowledge and information, and it is overwhelming us just as much as it did Adam and Eve. I have no idea why I'd never thought of that. But when you, it's like when you said that, it just illuminated everything. Because if you think about it, yes, the the reality is the majority of us have a bitten apple on the back of the thing that feels like it gives us control. Right. Yeah. And I'm just like, did Steve Jobs know that at the time? Like, was he aware of that? I I can't. Actually, I looked it up because, and I want to say, I can't take credit for that idea. I've heard it before other places. And I tried to find the original 
source and I never could, but I want to just admit that is not original to me. Still. But uh, the Apple logo actually is a nod to Isaac Newton mm. and the, I guess the apple falling on I mean, that's probably not even a real story, but isn't that kind of how that's like linked with his discovery of gravity or whatever? So that's actually what it has to do with. Interesting. Yeah. But unintentional coincidence there. But also, you know, Sir Isaac Newton was Mm -hmm. a very knowledgeable man. Mm -hmm. So we we can we can look into it that way. But it really got me thinking when you said that and when I read that paragraph is you know, and, and I've heard you talk about this before, too, is just how social media and our access to our constant access to media is forming us. And that is giving us a false sense of control. And mm-hmm. you can see it. Um, it is just so pervasive where you see people. Con- I mean, you, you kind of I mean, I'm not going to name names, but like, you know, the people I'm talking about who all they post on social media is just constant barrage of uh this fact and this fact and this fact and like this terrible news story and like this is terrible and the I'm moving to Europe and I'm like it's just a constant negativity it's a constant uh, uh you know almost chastising others who don't share the same you know political views or religious views or whatever views on a particular hot topic and it's like but they feel like with this device in their hand with a bitten apple on the back, they feel like they are in control and have all of the information and that you are a lesser person because you don't share that. Mm -hmm. And what I think is really interesting, and I think that this has really shifted a lot, especially in the last, I don't know, I'm kind of making a generalization, but maybe five to 10 years, is it has given us the, um, or we have lost the ability to disagree with each other mm-hmm. and to listen to each other mm-hmm. because, and I don't, you know, it's just like, we feel like we have the control. We feel like we have the knowledge. And so if you don't, if you, if you see something different and we can't, like you said, provide the information to back up what our th- opinion is. And if you don't have share the same opinion, then it's like, well, you are other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm just curious, and I, I realize I'm not like forming this into like the most eloquent question, but just your general thoughts on how that has played out for you or how you've maybe seen it play out for people in your church of, again, when, when you feel like you have all the control, you feel like you have all the knowledge and information, but then it's costing relationships. It's mm-hmm. costing um, your mental health and mm-hmm. all of that and and how that is just, it's like bleeding into everything mm-hmm. around us. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we underestimate the relationship between our control grasp at knowledge, how we reach for knowledge and information to feel more empowered and the link between that and relational division. But we actually see that's literally what happens in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve, they take the bite of this this fruit and they have this newfound knowledge of the world. And then one of the immediate after effects of it is division between them. Yeah. And that is not a, a link that we readily make, but we see it happening large scale in our country right now that we are overwhelmed by information and silence 
simultaneous to that, our country is just as polarized as ever. And that that is not a coincidence. But the other thing that that breaks it even more is that I really dig into. So for those listening that haven't read the book yet, I the book is divided into four parts. So the first part is why do we struggle with control? The second is what are the kind of tools of control? Like how do we try and control? The third is what is it costing us? And then the fourth is basically what is the solution to all of this? The real power God promises. And so one of the tools that we, and arguably the first that we reach for to give us a sense of control, to help us feel in control is knowledge and information. And so we go to the internet, we go onto our smartphones looking for like the pandemic, what's happening, give me a sense of certainty. But we do this in our daily habits as well. You know, your weather app is is something that you you go to. And and I tell a story in in the book about how I think it was was maybe Hurricane Florence. Well, no, no, no. There was another actually with I have just a checkered past with meteorology. You too. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, there was it was one of my kids birthday parties. I think it was Isaac's birthday party. And we were at the pool. And I've been checking the weather all day. And it had been saying sunny, 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 0% chance of precipitation, you know? And so I was like, oh, we're good to go. Well, right around the time the party is starting, I look and I see clouds on the horizon. I see a thunderstorm coming. And I open up my app and I it, all of a sudden it says 70% chance of thunderstorms within like 30 minutes of the storm <laughs> coming. And I'm staring at this and I suddenly feel so angry and I'm like yelling. I'm literally yelling at my phone because I'm like, what good are you? You know, like (laughs) what is meteorology even a science? Like, are they just guessing? You know, like this is not. And, you know, I'm I was expecting my weather app to give me an infallible prediction about the weather. And when it failed to do that, I felt betrayed, you know, like. I'm so angry. So that's a little bit of a digression, but we we rely on information to empower us and to give us a sense of, you know, predictability in the world. But we also rely on it to sway other people. Like we think that knowledge and information can help change other people's minds. That's what I was doing with people in our church. And so you see this all the time where people are just pelting one another with facts and information as if like this is going to change your mind. Like I'm wielding this like it's a weapon. And I can get people to, you know, change their minds, to change how they're living, to follow me, to come to my side, even though there's no evidence of this. Right. Like never in the history of the comment section has anyone ever changed their mind after being berated with data, you know? So we act like it is going to give us control, but what it actually does is it costs our our unity as a nation. Mm-hmm. You know, we are just, every time we try to use knowledge and information to control other people, it's just fracturing our, our country even more. And, yeah. and we're again, we're seeing this writ large. And so it happened in Genesis 3, and it's happening large scale culturally today. So, you know, for me, control has really played out differently in different seasons of life. And it's interesting how um, it wasn't until I went into counseling (laughs) where I was able to name why I was trying to control things, which is another thing that you talk a lot about in the book is this idea of naming and the importance of it. And um, for a little bit of background, I 
never went into counseling. I never went and saw a therapist, um, despite having a lot of trauma in childhood and my mom dying and uh, making a lot of just poor decisions in early adulthood. I I think I'd gone to see a therapist one time and I was like, ah, this is stupid and this isn't going to work. And that clearly played out very well um, in my adulthood. And it wasn't until I lost uh, our son Elijah during pregnancy where I realized it was a moment, it was a few weeks after we had lost him where I just had a full blown breakdown. And I, the way I felt so out of control in that situation, because I mean, I thought I had done all the things I'd been pregnant before and sure I was healthy and I was eating well and I was exercising and all those kinds of things. And you do the things that you think as a mother you're supposed to do when you're pregnant. And I still lost him. And then there was also no explanation as to what happened. So in those weeks, I felt so out of control. And so the way it manifested itself was I anxiety cleaned and I would, I was purging everything in my household. I mean, I was just going through rooms and I was like a tornado and I was just taking everything. I was like, this has to go, this has to go, this has to go. I was like scrubbing things that just never get scrubbed. I was like cleaning the blinds. Who cleans the blinds? No one, but I was. I was like going over them with a toothbrush. I mean, it was just, and, and it wasn't until my husband sat me down and he said, I like, you're not okay. And, you know, he was handling his grief much differently than I was. And um, a friend of mine was like, I, here's a number for a Christian counselor. Why don't you talk with her? And so <laughs> I remember our first session and I am just like word vomiting all of the things. And poor my poor counselor, she just looks at me and she goes, it seems like we have a lot to unpack. And I was like, <laughs> yes, that would be true. Because she, she realized she was like, wait, so you never went to counseling after your mom died? And I was like, no. And she goes, okay, I think we're going to need to go back a few years. And I was like, okay, so like 20 years, we're going to need to like unpack like 20 years of this stuff. She's like, yeah, I think we are. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't until she helped me to identify the fact, because I didn't, I thought, oh, well, I'm just being very productive. I'm I'm being productive by now, right now by cleaning and by purging and all those things. It wasn't until she pointed out to me, she said, what you are doing is actually trying to control the situation. You are trying to control the one thing you feel like you can control. And that is the state of your household. Mm -hmm. And she said, but what you're doing in the process, and here's what that cost me is because, you know, you look, you look at, okay, well, wh what are you trying to control? And you think like, oh, well, cleaning, cleaning the house is not a bad thing. Right. But when you do it to the extent that I was, it was costing me peace with my children who were living. Because if they even messed up the tiniest thing, I would just lose it. I would uh -huh. be like, I spent hours cleaning this household and here you are destroying it. I mean, and they're being kids. Yeah, I'm feeling convicted right now. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying. And so it wasn't until she said, you have to be able to identify what it is doing to you and what it is doing to your children. Yeah. And so from that, she's like, I'm not saying don't clean your house. I'm not saying don't purge things. But you have to look at where's the motivation right. for that. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where this has really manifested itself in my life. And then I was, I've been able to identify that. But then it was interesting because um, if, for those that know my story, just five weeks after we lost Elijah, I got pregnant again. And that was um, a whoopsie. And uh, I'm just going to put that out there. That was not on purpose. And so here I am, not mentally prepared at all to be pregnant again, terrified. And so I felt, again, 
out of control. And so what did I do? I scheduled appointments with my midwife every single week. And I made them do ultrasounds as much as possible. And everything was great. And everything was great. And I that was doing everything I could to control. I mean, I like barely felt like I could exercise now at this point because I was like, well, maybe exercise is what, what did it. And I get into the second trimester and everything is great. And then what happens? I lose the baby again with no explanation whatsoever. So that six to seven month span I felt completely out of control. And so I was fracturing so many other aspects of my life, trying to control the little thing that I could. which Um, And and which was actually an illusion. Like you couldn't actually, like you can't control your body. 100%, which is a terrifying thing when you Mm -hmm. really think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I know that you talk about this a little bit in the book too, is just, um, and I I, I don't remember exactly how you frame it, but I mean, I think about too with like health things. Mm -hmm. Like if something, you know, if somebody gets a cancer diagnosis, you can't control that. And I always, you know, see the people who are like, oh, you know, people, I'm just going to, admit it right now. I obviously drink a, a Diet Coke beverage and I really enjoy my Diet Coke. And the the internet warriors really love to tell me about how aspartame is going to give me cancer. Um, even though the general research that I've said is like, I'd have to drink 1900 cans of Diet Coke a day in order for <laughs> it to, to really negatively affect me. Um, so save your emails uh, if you dis- disagree with that. But that is the knowledge and information that I have controlled <laughs> and I believe. Um, but, you know, Yes, I, in general, I'm a very healthy person, but I also know marathon runners who eat salads every day and have never smoked a cigarette in their entire lives who died of lung cancer at the age of 39. Mm-hmm. So we cannot control things. I'm not right. saying be a poor steward of your body. I'm mm-hmm. really regurgitating a lot of things right now, but um, I'm just saying that there's just this manifests so differently in so many different mm-hmm. people. And um, it wasn't until I was able to name and identify exactly what it was that I was doing that I was able to be- to begin to make different choices from mm-hmm. a different source of motivation. Yeah, I I think, first of all, I want to just highlight what you said about how we tend to cope with the loss of control in one area by exerting control in another area. And that was one of the reasons why I think pastors were running up against their congregations so often is, you know, pastors are trying to lead, pastors are dealing with their own control issues. But then meanwhile, the people in their church are losing control in some areas. And so they're figuring out, okay, well, what do I still have control over? Okay, well, no one can tell me what to do in this area. And so this is running, you know, headfirst into one another. And so that is a really common, you know, cleaning. Like I, that's, that is a way that I actually cope with stress is I'm like, if everything's chaotic, at least my home can be clean. And then then I'm really terrible. Like I, I did yell at, my middle the other day because I'd cleaned his closet and then he, you know, used it like a closet and I got really upset with him. <laughs> How dare. <laughs> so, but yeah, so that that's a really important point to highlight just so that we can see that we're doing it and name that this is a common control response when you've yeah. lost control in one area. Now, another thing that you, you sort of touched on and that I talk about in the last section of the book is that 
God doesn't give us control, but he does give us agency. Mm. And we see this in Genesis 1 and 2 where Adam and Eve are not in control, but they're not puppets. They're not robots. They're not slaves. Like he empowers them and he commissions them into, you know, exercising dominion over creation. And so what I wanted to do in that last section of the book is look at, okay, what are the different forms of agency that we see? And the very first one is naming and ordering. You know, that is how God, you know, responds to the chaos is he names it and he orders it. And then he literally commissions Adam to do the exact same thing. Yes. And so when we're naming and ordering, we are bearing God's image. We are, you know, exercising this God-given power that he's given us to respond to chaos. We can't control the chaos, but we can name and we can order. And so a really practical example of this in my life with my kids when we were home and I was yelling at them all the time, finally realizing, okay, one thing I can do to help order our household, not control it, but order it is just give my kids a schedule. Yeah. And that actually helped a lot. It didn't fix everything, but it helped. And so I wasn't controlling them. I was ordering our home. And so I I think there is actually, even when you're, you love to clean your house, I think that's actually to an extent you're imaging your creator. You're right. reflecting the image of God. If you if you love to order your home and you love systems and processes, like God does too, it's when we replace this act of stewardship with engineering and outcome, you yes. know, or we're going to it as a well of security and stability. That's when it becomes a problem. And similarly with our bodies. You know, God commissioned Adam and Eve to exercise dominion over creation, and that includes our bodies. And so we are commissioned to care for our bodies, to take care of our bodies, to love our bodies. That is an act of stewardship. What we cannot do is control our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so again, it's, it's making sure you are exercising agency instead of control. And that distinction is really, really important because it can look the same but our motives are different. Why we're going to that, what we're looking for it to give us is really crucial. Yeah. And I think that that's such an interesting point that you said just about this idea of stewardship and agency versus control. And that is a really important distinction because it can often look muddy and you can maybe be like, well, am I stewarding and having agency and creating order or am I trying to control? Mm-hmm. How do you, what is the thing that maybe you would say is the biggest differentiator? Like if somebody's sitting at home and they're they're thinking, they're listening to this conversation, then they kind of throughout the week are thinking about this and they they might be looking at a particular situation. How, what would be maybe a, like a key differentiating factor that would say, this is something you are trying to exert control over that is going to cost you versus this is you stewarding, having agency, naming and ordering those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Anxiety. Mm. That's the big red flag. Am I doing this to cope with anxiety? Do I feel anxious in the middle of it? Do I feel anxious if it doesn't turn out the way that I wanted it to? And sometimes we're not even aware that we feel anxious. It's it's more in our bodies. Like I just heard uh, Rich Velotis, you know. Yeah. He was talking about, he said at their church, they talk about the body as a major prophet, not a minor prophet. Mm, yeah. 
100%. And how your body is is very often the first to tell you how you're really feeling. And so if you're, you know, clenching your jaw at night in your sleep, or if you're, you know, feel tension in your neck or your back, you know, whatever it is that, that very often that's telling you like how you actually feel. Yeah. But yeah, I think anxiety is a really big indicator of this is not about stewardship. This is about me trying to soothe something inside of myself. Mm, that's really good. And that's, I like that you brought up the, the clenching of the jaw and like your body kind of being the indicator. Because it's really interesting because, you know, anxiety and stress and things like that were, were something that I battled for a really long time. And I developed TMJ because mm. of it. And had to, it was really super sexy and I uh, slept with a mouth guard every night. And I remember there was a season in our marriage where I had plantar fasciitis. I had my mouth guard. So I had to sleep with this like foot brace on every night with a mouth guard. And then and then I had, was like, there was like a couple weeks where I had a sinus infection. So I was sleeping with a breathe right strip. And then I also sleep with an eye mask on. And You're so like I remember. Josie Grossy. Yes. <laughs> and I remember looking at John one night before bed. And here I am just decked out in my eye mask and my breathe right strip, my mouth guard and my plantar fasciitis boot. And I'm just like, is this what you pictured when you, <laughs> when you were thinking about the one day going to bed with your your betrothed, like your, your bride, you as the bridegroom, me as the bride. Is this really what you pictured? Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah, I just told all of you really just great information about me. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I, like stress and anxiety manifested itself in my body, in my jaw. And so I would often wake up with like my jaw literally like quite literally uh, dislocated out of place because I had clenched my jaw so much overnight. And it was really interesting because I started to name that and notice that the more stressed and anxious I was, the more that I would wake up in the morning with like a headache because I had clenched my jaw so much overnight. When we moved to the farm, a month after we moved to the farm, I stopped having to wear my mouth guard at night. And I and it was interesting because it was like it's not that I'm not stressed or anxious here. It's just it's a different like it's just different. And I was able to realize that, oh, I needed like I have my place here now where I can go and just breathe and I can sit on the front porch and I can listen to the birds and I can watch my dogs playing in the yard or I can go out and just hang out with my chickens or walk down to the creek. And I just realized like how much I needed that and how much getting back to just simplicity and being in nature and breathing like oxygen and sunshine, how much that has helped me. And it sounds so basic. And I realize that that's that like that's not a prescription. That's not what's going to work for everybody. Um, but I but I was missing that before and mm -hmm. I didn't realize how much I needed that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the questions I get all the time is if I'm not supposed to control in a situation, what do I do instead? Mm hmm. And that's a tricky question to answer because it's still kind of a control question. It is. Because it's, it's well, like- Well, if I can't control this, then what's the other thing I can control? Yeah, what's the other thing I can do <laughs> to still like make this happen? Yeah, right. 
<laughs> and so it's just like a backdoor answer yeah. to control. <laughs> yeah. And so I think this, it's important to zoom out a little bit and and put your finger on, and again, this goes back to naming. And, and again, for those of you that haven't read the book yet, at the very beginning, I say how, I explained how the majority of the book is devoted to naming accurately our struggle, our relationship with control in all its forms. Mm-hmm. And I don't get to the solution until the very, very end. And that is not how the publishing industry works yeah. <laughs> generally. It's like, how do you have your best life now on page one, you know? Yep. But how, if we don't name the problem accurately, like if we rush past that and we name it incorrectly, it's the same with medicine. If you have the wrong diagnosis, then the cure will also be unhelpful. Yeah. And so I spend a lot of time just, you know, on that naming work. But if we name why you're feeling anxious, which is actually not usually just in this exact moment where you want to control, but it's it's much bigger. Like, what are all the different things in my life where I'm trying to control something that God hasn't given me to control? For a lot of us, it you are feeling anxious because you are ingesting news all the time. Right. Yes. And that is a completely different, that's not like a here in the heat of the moment kind of a thing. It's like your your actually daily habits are habits of control and you don't even realize that you're going to your phone to give you predictability and certainty every hour. Mm-hmm. You're turning on the TV and just have it playing like so many family, you know, older family members that just have the news on like 24 mm-hmm. seven. And then you've had conversations with family members like that where that's the first thing they want to talk about then is how awful the world is and how terrible it is. And you can see how anxiety ridden they are because they're inundating themselves with more knowledge and information that they were ever designed to bear. Yeah. And so exercising agency, the answer to that question is not instead of this, do this. But one of the the forms of agency that we have that we see in the garden is the good of honoring our limitations and restoring our limits and saying, you know what, I can't bear all this information. I'm going to turn off the TV. I'm going to stop reading the news all the time. And that is a form of agency that we have that will actually help your anxiety. It's not the cure-all instead of control, but it actually does help. Yes. I will say there was somebody, this person is no longer in my life, but there was somebody who was pretty in my life for uh, like a 10, 11 year span who that was that person Mm -hmm. who literally woke up in the morning, turned on Fox News and did not turn it off till they went to bed. Mm -hmm. And it was exhausting Uh, for me. It was exhausting for everyone um, around this person. And it's and that was really before social media was a thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's just I can only imagine what it's like. Yeah. Now. And it's not like not even to pick on people that watch Fox News because I know people. Oh, I mean, CNN, it doesn't matter. But I'm live just in, saying like, we live this in person. Durham, which yeah. is like very progressive. And so 100%. I know a lot yeah. of people that are the Same equivalent thing. MSNBC. where they think like our democracy is like in danger. And, and <laughs> as yeah. soon as you like start to have this conversation, I want to be like, what news are like, how often are you on your phone? <laughs> yeah. you <know>? Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. And. And with social media, it's the, yeah, it's the same thing, and it just it it creates uh, a vicious cycle mm-hmm. of just like consume, mm-hmm. be more anxious, and then because you're more anxious, you want to consume mm-hmm. more, and then it just builds. Yeah, on itself. and the answer is not stick your head in the sand. You know right. that that's not the answer, but just honoring the fact that you cannot physically, emotionally, spiritually bear constant bad news. Yeah. You just, the, there's only one person that can do that and it is God. 
Yeah. It is not us. We cannot bear it. And so the the answer is not to just bury your head in the sand and pretend like everything is fine, but to honor like the limitations of your soul. Yes. And have boundaries around that. Yeah. This has been something that I have really been very conscious of over the last few years, but just in general. And I think I've been in a unique position just because the nature of what I do is mostly online. And so I don't necessarily have the liberty to just delete all social media because that would essentially delete my business. So that I can't do that. So probably around the time my daughter was like a year old, I sat down and I just with myself and um and I think you and I have talked about this before where I just I created a list of sort of personal social media boundaries um to develop healthy relationship with the apps and with the internet. And it is not something that I am, I would say I have mastered, but I would say in general, 95% of the time, I have a very healthy relationship with social media. Um, and I I mean, I think it was funny, actually, back in July, I had just kind of decided on a whim to just like take a couple of weeks off. And I remember you'd even texted me and I was like, you were like, are you okay? I just like realized you haven't been. I was like, yeah, I just kind of like, where are the goat reels? I know. I was just like, eh, I think I just kind of depend on those decided to take a couple of weeks off. And then and just because I just wanted to. And so it, but it for me, it it's about having a healthy relationship and and the mute button is highly recommended. Yes. If there is somebody who is making you anxious and you are overthinking, well, I can't unfollow them because then they're going to know I unfollowed them. They're probably one, not going to know that you unfollowed them. That's number one is I don't think people actually check that as much as you think that they do. But if that's genuinely a concern, use the mute button. Mm-hmm. So if you're engaging with content on social media that is making you anxious, right. stop. Yeah. And I realize that that might seem difficult, but create a system of boundaries where you are you are exercising agency over this. And mm-hmm. by being a good steward of the way that you use social media, the way that you use the internet, the way that you um, interact with other people online and creating those boundaries. And um, I'm not saying it again, it, it doesn't fix itself overnight. But when you create those those healthy habits, it really can uh, create a, just a, an overall healthier relationship with social media and relationships and, and all those kinds of things. Yeah. And, and I want to add one of the ways that I think this gets really twisted in our in our hearts and our minds. And I didn't even say this specifically in the book, but I think for some of us, anxiety is actually how we feel in control. Mm. Like we it we want to be vigilant. You know, we want to stay on top. And if we're not feeling anxious, then we think, oh, we must be missing something. You know, kind of like if you're not angry, you're not paying attention kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's important to know that that God knows everything that's happening. He is the paying attention yeah. one yeah. Yeah. <laughs> more than anyone else. And he is not angry all the time. Yeah. And so we are not called to that. We we cannot bear that up. But I, I think for some of us, we feeling anxious is is actually how we feel yeah. engaged and and in control. And it's important to name that Jesus came and lived and died for you to not live that way. Right. He died to set you free from living that way. And so that that's not going to give you the life that you want. That's that's not where that road takes you. And so just to name that to you, if, if in your mind, anxiety makes you feel empowered, makes you feel in control, that, that Jesus wants more for you than that. Mm. 
Now, and this is one thing I just sort of thought about in the moment, is there are people who also struggle with control who don't necessarily struggle with anxiety. They Uh just want to be in control all the time. Uh And so they might be more of a person who's in a position of leadership Uh and doesn't delegate well, Uh doesn't uh, allow others to step into, you know, some sort of leadership role because they feel like that if they give up control, that everything will crumble, that nobody can do things as well as they can. Yeah. Is that something that you have seen, you know, just in working with so many different leaders and kind of being in ministry and and connecting with other leaders? How might that person who's listening, who's like, well, I'm not anxious. I don't stuff. I don't suffer from anxiety, Mm -hmm. but they know they suffer with control issues. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do think actually people that are controlling leaders, a lot of them do struggle with anxiety, but maybe they haven't named it that way. Mm. You know, that that they've chosen to pay that cost of living in fear of losing their power, you know, creating a, a culture of fear in order to maintain their power. And that is something that an anxious person does, mm. whether or not they realize it, unless they are like a narcissist or yeah. a sociopath or something like yeah, that. That's interesting. Um, so that's that's something that there's a lot there are a lot of leaders that people look at and think, oh, they they don't struggle with that. And I'm like, oh, but they do. Like you can tell mm. that they do. <laughs> you can tell that that is not a flourishing human being. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, but the the other thing that just a, a warning is to know and and someone who's in that place is probably not even thinking on this level, but Again, what they are breaking, the other high, high cost is they're breaking the people around them. Yeah. Big time. Yes. And unfortunately, when you get to that position, I think there are, when you have that much power, you can sort of deceive yourself or deaden yourself in some ways where you're, you're, you don't care about that. But that is a huge, huge cost of, I mean, we see it obviously in dictators or really like toxic leaders, but anytime where we are exercising our power, even if it's not an anxiety response in us where we're controlling people, it's going to break the people around us. Yeah. What you were saying reminded me of John and I were actually having a conversation about this a couple of days ago. And I believe it's and forgive me if I'm misspeaking, um, but there was a, po- a leadership podcast he was listening to. And uh, do you know who Jocko Willink is? He's like a big no. old, he's like a military. He was like a former Navy SEAL. Mm-hmm. Um, that, like most dudes are like, oh yeah, I know Jocko. Like big old Navy SEAL dude, but like talks a lot about leadership and just mm-hmm. like in, in general. Um, but he, uh, one of the things he talks about is as a leader, you are constantly and, and he doesn't exib- uh, explicitly say the word control, but the more you were saying this, I was like, oh, this is essentially what it is, is how when you lead, you are constantly either spending or earning leadership capital. Hmm. And so what he means is like, so for example, you're in a meeting with mm-hmm. people that you are uh, leading and somebody brings up an idea for how to do something. And you know, as a leader, that that idea is, or you think as a leader, that that idea is no way as good as the way you want to do it. Mm-hmm. You can do one of two things. You can say, uh, nope, that's a terrible idea and shut it down. And as the leader, and you have that choice, but Mm -hmm. to exert control over that situation. But what you are doing is you have just spent leadership capital. Mm. Or you could say to that person, empower them to make that decision and say, you know what? I think I like that we can probably hear the guineas on the, (laughs) hey, you know what? 
if we're just going to leave it in grace you just there are guineas right outside my office and they are just going to town and so if you can hear them then welcome to recording on the farm <laughs> okay so uh, as i was saying is if you if you say to that person you know what if you know in your head it might not be as great as the way you want to do it but you know it'll work Mm-hmm. You say, you know what? Let's try it that way. Mm-hmm. You what you have then just done is you have relinquished some control over the situation, mm-hmm. and you've. But what you've done is you've earned leadership capital, hmm. and it has earned you respect as a leader, mm-hmm. um, because you can earn leadership capital and mm-hmm. earn relationship um, with the people that you're leading, the people you're around. But if you continue to spend leadership capital mm-hmm. by exhibiting and exerting control over mm-hmm. the people that you are leading, yeah. you eventually, that capital is going to run out. Yeah, And we've seen that in church leaders. We've seen that in political leaders. We've seen that in so many examples um, in our culture and, and in our world today where leaders have just constantly exerted control over things and then they've spent all of their leadership capital. That is such a great perspective because I think we think of not control as just pure loss. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm not going to do more damage. But the idea that in some circumstances, not controlling is also gain. Yes. That is great. I love that. Yeah. So anyway, it just you made what you said made me think of that. Um, Okay. well, we are running out of time here and I want to get to our get to know you round uh, as we always do at the end. But before we go, um, what is, you know, sort of your either final words of wisdom or uh, just what you are prayerful or hopeful for that this book is going to do for people? Well, I'll say two things. The first is that control is something that we all struggle with. And I think for the most part, we all know that we need to do less of. And for anyone who's been a Christian for any amount of time, we know that we should surrender and we know that we should trust God instead of ourselves. And we know, you know, head knowledge that our lives aren't better when we are in the driver's seat, that kind of a thing. And so we need to let, let go essentially. But I, I want to speak a word of, of grace that control isn't always just about sin, but it's because we are living in a Genesis 3 world, but we were created for Genesis 1 and 2. Mm. And so the craving for security and stability that is underneath control is God-given, that we were created for security and stability, yeah. and our souls are crying out for that, and that is not wrong. And so especially when you're in a situation where things are just broken and painful or you're watching someone that you love make really destructive Mm, decisions and you want to snatch them out and save them and, you know, control the situation that that is not sin. You know, that that is the heart of your your father in heaven. Yeah. And we know that that is his heart because he sent his son to rescue us and to heal, you know, what was broken in Genesis 3. And so I want to speak that that word of grace just over anyone who's in a really hard situation that they want to control and just to say it, it might not be about pride or idolatry at all. It's this is just a broken, painful situation and Jesus knows. So that's the first thing I want to say. And then I also just want to reiterate what I said earlier that a big part of the reason I wrote this book is just, you know, naming this accurately that you are feeling this way because you're trying to soothe your anxiety with control and it's just exacerbating your anxiety even more and to know that you don't have to live that way. 
You don't have to live that way. You can be free of that. Yeah. And so I that that's the other just takeaway is that if, if this is something you're really wrestling with and you keep going to control, to soothe your anxiety, to save you, to make you feel insecure, that you don't have to live that way. There's a better way. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Brent, thank you. Thanks for being here. Um, but before we go, you ready for the get to know you round? Yes. We ask just some fun, some fun questions, you know. Okay. okay. Uh, this one I thought would be a fun one because, you know, you are busy with leading a church and uh, writing and speaking. You wake up tomorrow, okay? And for no bad reason at all, mm-hmm. you have to pursue a totally different career. It can't be in ministry. It can't be writing. It can't be speaking. Mm-hmm. What would it be? I would work at Disney World. Oh my gosh, I love that. <laughs> like, w- like, would you want to be like a Disney princess or just like a general cast member? I think I would like to person be- Person running a ride. Like a character <laughs> wrangler. <laughs> like the person who like walks with the people dressed as Mickey yeah, or whatever. you get to like, it's a lot less work because you're not having to, you know, I'm not a good actor. So I could never be a princess or <laughs> Mickey Mouse or something like that. And all the, you would be great at that. I would, I would not be good that at would that. That would be really fun. But I would love to just stand there and watch people just have the time of their lives I and love have that. their year made by meeting Mickey Mouse. So I think that sounds like a great job. Um, I love that. That's the, gr- wrangler. That's, the best, <laughs> that's the best answer is like you wouldn't, yeah, if you're not in ministry, you're not speaking, you're not writing, you would be a character wrangler <laughs> at Disney World. This is why we're friends. Changing my bio. I love this. So yes, yes. Want to be a character wrangler. Um, okay. What is your current guilty pleasure? Not to be redundant, but it's actually Disney podcasts. I've told Disney podcast. Told you about this, haven't I? Okay, I know that there was one that you listened to a while ago that was like the secrets of Disney or something, or the um. <sighs> well, and I knew about the Disney Plus show that was like the Imagineering. Yeah, one the Imagineering story. You yeah. loved that one. Yeah, I almost have talked about that now more than Jesus. It's like becoming a problem. But this was how, and this is how you know I'm an Enneagram 7. This was how I got through the pandemic was watching the Imagineering story, which if you haven't seen it, you should, and especially if you love Disney, you have to watch this. It's like a six part series about the people that create the parks. And so it's really nostalgic. It's really fun. But it's also, it kind of scratched that itch of learning more about taking risks and you know, managing creatives. And it just is really, really well done. And that was my gateway into Disney podcasts. Mm. Because I think one day I just randomly thought, oh, I wonder if they have podcasts about this. And so I think I searched just Imagineers on like my podcast app yeah. and I found the Imagineer podcast. And then that led me into, um, I listened to one called Beyond the Mouse where they interview a lot of folks. Same with Imagineer. They interview a lot of creators. I love that so much. <laughs> um, and then there's another one called Connecting with Walt that is more about the history of Disney. And it's fascinating. And so I have a bunch, I probably have like four or five Disney podcast that I listen to. And Ike is so embarrassed by it. I love this fact about you so much. He's so embarrassed by it. It's (laughs) like, it's one of those things where I'm like, I'm probably listening to this too much and it's becoming a problem, but it could be worse. There are worse vices. (laughs) That is true. Than Disney podcast. That is true. I love it. Okay. Um, What has been the most interesting thing you have read or watched recently? Hmm. And if it's a Disney podcast, it's also okay. <laughs> so I just read a book that was recommended to me called 
Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. I, somebody else recommended that book recently. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it dives into our culture's relationship with the body and how our our culture devalues like the human body and, mm-hmm. and really elevates like either how you feel like your your body doesn't tell you who you are like how you feel tells right. you who you are yeah um it kind of gets into notions of personhood you know with questions about abortion euthanasia it's really really fascinating and so that was really interesting I I've said with a couple of people, I really like Nancy Piercy. She's brilliant, but she has, I would say, a slightly more embattled posture towards our culture than I am comfortable with. I I don't feel like and we need to correct the culture. That's not my posture because as much as I love that she kind of elevates in this book and says these are these ideals where Christian theology has historically had this coherent understanding of the mind, body, and soul. We don't separate them out. We don't value one over the other. We don't say that the mind is greater than emotions. Like this is not good theology. And at our best, Christians have upheld those ideals and lived into them. But Christians have not always. We have not always lived up to our ideals. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that in humility whenever we're engaging the culture and and not to say, hey, culture, get it right. This is, this is how it should be. But instead to humbly say, this is, this is what God has, has this vision that he's cast for the human person. We have also not lived up to it, but thankfully we have Jesus. You know, we, we have failed to uphold this, but thank goodness for Jesus. And so I, I'm always much more careful in that way. And so we're, we're a little bit different. It's it's not really embattled, um, but just I want to asterisk yeah. it with that. But overall, it's brilliant. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, I love that. The Guineas are also really in agreement. Big as well. fan, big I fan just... of theology. Oh, heavens to Betsy. Okay, um, and then this is the last question that I ask all of my guests, and that is, uh, Sharon, what does it mean to you to run a business or a church or a ministry or write with purpose? Hmm. So I am in a season of going back to remember the lightness of my yoke, Mm. you know, the easy burden of following Jesus. And when you're, especially in ministry, it is so hard to remember that, that this is meant to be an easy burden. I mean, that's not to say that it isn't hard. But it shouldn't be as heavy as we often make it. And so that is something that I've been chewing on a lot for the last six months or so. And one of the things that really has been lightening to Mm -hmm. me is remembering that my number one task as a pastor at Bright City Church is to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And that's it. That is it. And I'm not responsible to make other people do that. I am called to exercise stewardship over this, you know, authority and responsibility, but I can't make anyone else do that. I'm only responsible for me. And so that is a really simple and light, (laughs) less burdensome call. And so that's something that I'm really trying to be purposeful about. So good. Friend, I'm so grateful for you. Thanks for being here. It's been fun. 
I really hope and pray that this conversation blessed you. I love Sharon so much, and I am just so thankful for the voice that she is in our culture right now. And it is so, so, so needed. And I really pray that you take something away from this conversation that really impacts you and that you share this show with a friend that you know also needs to hear this conversation. So if there was something that you learned or loved in this episode, please screenshot it. Let us know on social media. Tag me at Still Being Molly or at Business with Purpose Podcast or Sharon on whatever social platforms you are using and just share the show with a friend. It really is so, so important for growing the show, for getting people to listen to it. And it just helps me to know, you know, how the show is impacting you. And so be sure to go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen and click that subscribe or follow button and take a moment to leave a review so that you can help me to know what you're liking and how the show is personally impacting you. Be sure to tune in next week where my guest is Caitlin Beatty. I've been so excited to have Caitlin on the show. She is also the author of a new book that is coming out this week, and it is called Celebrities for Jesus. And it is such a good conversation. Caitlin is hilarious. We had the best time. And so I know that you are going to love hearing my conversation with Caitlin. So be sure to tune in next week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to the team at Third Wheel Media for producing this show. And as always, go do something good with purpose on purpose.